Shrimp and grits and fried chicken may be making waves across the country as Southern food becomes increasingly in vogue, whether you're in Atlanta or Brooklyn. But back in the 1970s in Charleston, South Carolina, avoidance of those staples was maybe the most Southern thing you could do. Maybe you'd like some oysters mornay or jellied consomme madrienne. Can you taste that long-lost pretension? You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories about the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today, Jack Hitt brings us a story that starts with what that fancy, somewhat French food tells us about the South and leads us into the more sensitive corners of claiming a Southern identity and the cultural politics of both yesterday and today's shrimp and grits. Here's Jack. Growing up in South Carolina, my friends and I played games outside, relying upon the simple things we had at hand, like tourists, for instance. They can be found all over Charleston, reading those little plaques bolted to every house, or gathering in pods at a garden gate to glimpse the depravity of azaleas. Giving a tourist the runaround was a traditional sport for Charlestonians, and one enjoyed by locals of every age and acquaintance. We were all in on the deal. During my teenage years, the 70s, the carriage tour trade took off. Several friends of mine won the plum spot of donning a sash instead of a belt and driving a sweet-tempered nag up and down our streets while reciting a storyline whose bluster sounded very much like history. My friend Gus drove the carriage back then, and the way one game worked was this. If Gus was ambling down Meeting Street in his tourist-crammed Surrey, he might catch my eye as I walked down the street and his narration would suddenly switch out to the swashbuckling tale of the only female general of the Confederacy, Jacqueline Hitt. And Gus would point and say, and she lived and died in that very house. His awesome tale would unfold with increasingly bold and preposterous but deadpan details. The game was to keep a straight face as I, on the street, raised one arm like a helpful game show host to indicate the window through which General Jackie had met her god. The payoff was the paparazzi-like explosion of a dozen Kodak cameras clicking away. In those days, Gone with the Wind was still a seasonal TV indulgence, and even though the movie is racist schmaltz, let's be honest, Charlestonians still love to isolate one little moment. Just before Rhett utters the classic line, Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Scarlett asks him, where is he going to go? And Rhett says, he's going home to Charleston. I want to see if somewhere there isn't something left in life of charm and grace. To see if there isn't something left in life of charm and grace. It was always a surprise to us kids just how many tourists remembered that line. It would ask us if we knew where Rhett Butler was buried. Of course we knew. Because when it came to shining on tourists, we were more ruthless than Incan warriors dispatching conquistadors over fatal mountain ridges to El Dorado. Oh, sure, we'd say. Rhett Butler's grave just up here. He's buried next to John C. Calhoun at St. Philip's Graveyard. Can't miss it. Here's the thing. If you did take that very hike and just kept going a little further north, you'd find Rhett's boat docked in the harbor. Like I said, everyone was in on the deal. In the movie, remember, Rhett was a smuggler who slipped past Union blockades in his speedy sloop. And now, a century later, 
at the foot of Charlotte Street in Charleston, you could eat lunch aboard his very boat. The advertising of that time said it all. Rhett Butler's notorious blockade runner returns to Charleston Harbor, the Scarlet O'Hara, Charleston's only floating restaurant. Across town atop the circular Holiday Inn, we also had a revolving restaurant. Like I said, it was the 70s. To a sharp eye, Rhett's ship might seem a bit of naval pastiche. The eating area was incoherently Caribbean and known as the Nassau Dining Room. Nearby was the one thing you rarely see on a blockade runner, the Paddle Wheel Lounge, which was next to a bar with the suspect name, The Cargo Hold, which was either some cringeworthy reference to the slave trade or some oblique sexual innuendo. Either way, it left anyone possessed of a second thought a bit shaky. Now that Charleston is a key destination on the modern map of American cuisine, it's hard to imagine the restaurant boondocks it once was. Almost no one ate out back then. Maybe there were three or four places worth mentioning, but just barely. What passed for Italian food happened in a place up near County Hall called Labraska's, notable for ethnic exotica such as spaghetti with sauce and pizza. But mostly, it was known for very dim lighting, broken only by the flicker of candles stuck in wicker Chianti bottles, behind which we teenagers practiced our hickey skills. There was one fine French restaurant, Perdita's, but that was where your grandparents ate on their anniversary. For everyone else, there was only one place to catch a fancy meal, aboard the Scarlet O'Hara. I recently got a hold of a 70s menu from back then, and there, cast in amber, is the reality of Southern cuisine back in that simpler time when no one had heard of Patty Hearst, and the frontier of outrage was the campfire scene in Blazing Saddles. Listen to these menu options and join me, won't you, on a journey back in time. Shall we start off with Oysters Mornay or Jellied Consomme Madrienne? Maybe you'd like some Escargot Bourguignon or Coquille Saint-Jacques. Can you taste that long-lost pretension? Would you like a bottle of cold duck to go with your pitiful affectation? How about some Blue Nun? Try picturing the 18-year-old me ordering Faison à la Sassienne before instructing the waiter to bring my dessert of choice, Baked Alaska. If you were on a date in 1973, confidently ordering Frog Legs Provençal Sauce Fantastique, well then, friend, you pretty much knew what was likely to happen later that night. Fiddle-dee-dee, y'all. I know what you're thinking. Wait, where is the authentic Southern food? Oh honey, it's right there in the roast duckling a l'orange. Let me explain something. Because there's been a lot of forgetting in the intervening decades. Back in the 70s, the most Southern thing happening in the South was avoidance of all things traditionally Southern. We were inventing the new South. And since we had Hee Haw and Billy Carter to answer for, there was a general dialing back of accents. Talk of grits or hominy was strenuously avoided. And when you rarely saw the Confederate flag, it seemed to be affixed exclusively on black smoke belching rattletrap Chevy pickup trucks. Back to where I'm happy to report, it has recently retreated. Let me dig a little deeper here. Some 20 years ago, I was visiting a friend who had rehabbed an old house. I was fascinated to see what all he'd done, 
So I drove my wife and kids over for lunch one day, and as we pulled up to this beautiful place, I saw, flapping on the front porch, a Confederate flag. I hate when this happens. And let me speak confidentially to all the white Southern Protestants out there. Stumbling upon a Confederate flag at a friend's house, it's a kind of thing, right? How do I describe this? White Protestants already know what I'm talking about. There are moments that happen, sometimes at holiday dinners or high school reunions or the wake of some eccentric old lady you loved. It's when somebody says something about, say, Jewish lawyers or the blacks. It's never overtly racist or viciously anti-Semitic, but it's just enough to force you to begin what I call the calculus. Do I say something or not? And how do I say it? So you run the numbers in your head. Did this guy say this gnarly thing out of genuine naivete? Or is he skirting the edge of decency to see if I'll react? Part of the math includes the identity of the person you're talking to. If it's your grandfather, somebody you can just call out, no problem. But typically, it's far more awkward. The person is your mother's childhood friend's husband. And so the dilemma is this. Does this moment require that I climb upon that great steed named Offended and cry havoc? I cannot tell you how many times I've had to run these numbers, many more than I want to admit. I could almost break these moments into their various kinds, like phylum, order, genus, and species. And one of those species would be the moment that is redeemed by a deus ex machina, when something unseen intervenes and magically robs you of your little moment of righteous dudgeon. I remember once being on our front porch on Water Street in Charleston at a cocktail party, and I was talking to a bunch of my high school friends' fathers. See how it works? My high school friends' fathers. One tall but slightly dim gentleman, who could have been a senator in a movie, started bellyaching about too many World War II documentaries on the History Channel. I'm not even sure the Holocaust even happened, he added, and poof, all the oxygen in our little circle was gone. Okay, calculus on this one is easy. Holocaust denial? Definitely have to say something. And it's my friend's father, whom I see every three or four years very casually, so taking him down won't be too ruinous in the long run. So the question is mode. Do I do it angrily? Do I laugh in his face? Do I go all scholarly with footnotes? Actually, sir, if you read Primo Levi, and so on. I was thinking I would go with angry, because I'm pretty good at it. And with the age difference, I judged that I had to seize control of the floor with a sharp blast of hot temper. But then I heard the grinding of the chains, and from on high, there was the deus ex machina. It descended in the form of another father, a quiet man who wasn't quite as lit as the others. He took a single step into the circle and said simply, please don't ever say things like that. I was one of the first soldiers at Mauthausen, and one of the prisoners came up to thank me, to know that the U.S. Army was real. He was a human skeleton, and when he stepped back, he left handprints on my uniform of his own skin. I will never forget it. A haunted silence consumed the porch. The work was done. Such moments don't happen often enough, but when they do, 
It reaffirms a sense that sometimes the arc of history bends in the right direction. And so once again, here I am at my friend's porch, and there's the battle flag, and I'm running the calculus. My kids are there, so I cannot let this one slide. Still, I'm feeling kind of sad now. I don't really want to do this, but I have to do it. I'm pondering. Anger won't work here. So I'm thinking sarcasm, some serious belittling, a variation of, really? Stars and bars? Seriously, have you re-upped your John Birch membership or something? But then I hear the grinding of the chains. And behold, his parents, who were also coming, pull in right then, interrupting the moment. His elegant mother, whom I adored, immediately sees the flag and demands to know what it is doing up there. He stammers about heritage, not hate, but she isn't in the mood for that line of horse and states unequivocally that she won't be stepping inside the house until the flag comes down. Thank you, Jesus, for mothers, because this one was so much like my own. A woman of the 50s whose distress was not a commentary on all those lichen-encrusted debates about a lost cause. No, no. My mom never gave a damn about Civil War debates. To her and her set, that flag was, in a word, vulgar. Something angry rednecks put in rear windshields. In the 70s, the Confederate flag signified that you were lowborn, uneducated, had no ambitions for upward mobility. It was the flag that said you would never recognize frog legs, at least not on this side of a saute pan. This was not about antebellum history, but about contemporary elitism. Flying the flag was akin to driving a car the color of primer paint, or arguing that spam was better than Vienna sausages, or thinking that that bumper sticker, eat more possum, was just hilarious. It was just gross and demeaning in a very white Protestant way. And as we all know, regardless of race, creed, or color, no one messes with mama. So that afternoon, the flag came down. The cuisine of the 70s was all about this too, about escaping the hickness of our history and aspiring to a better world. Looking more closely at that menu now, I can see exactly what I was eating. I was consuming my parents' dream of a better future, a new South, a Charleston where there was a little charm and grace. Coming up, how Charleston went from the Frenchified version of that charm and grace to finding culinary inspiration a little closer to home. That's ahead. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Southern Foodways Alliance delivers great stories to its audience. There's this podcast. There's a quarterly print journal that mails to members and is featured on the website. We have engaging and thought-provoking films, all streamed for free online. Our oral history collection is robust. Our blog is updated daily. And we are active on social media. You can tweet us at Potlicker. We aim to keep you informed and satisfied. So once each year, we turn to you, our audience, and ask for some support in return. In 2015, as we launch our annual appeal, we hope you'll consider a donation to the SFA to support our ongoing work. 
Donations are tax-deductible, and you can make them online. Visit southernfoodways.org for details, and thank you so much in advance. And now, back to Jack Hitt and the French-enthralled menus of Charleston, South Carolina restaurants in the 1970s. Julia Child's public television show debuted in 1963, and the artifact of this menu reveals how the tidal wave of that national television program washed up a decade later in the paddlewheel room of the Scarlet O'Hara with the teenager Jack Hitt struggling to impress Llewellyn Sinclair with his entree choice. But of course, this happens in some form every time we eat. Every meal is merely a present tense moment that connects a slightly revised sense of the past with a hopeful script for the future. Which is precisely what I was eating, aboard a fake Rhett Butler's blockade runner, with each bite of my Chateaubriand Bouquetterie Sauce Bernays. The Southern food that we all associate with being Southern, grits, pork barbecue, collards, were all being eaten in restaurants back then, but rarely in any place that rose above the station of truck stop. The region's traditional food largely happened in home kitchens and existed as background noise to the more proper menus of our restaurants. I cook whole hog barbecue a couple of times a year, and people always ask me, when did you learn to do this? Honestly, I have no idea. And I keep telling myself I have to sit down and really try to remember, or as Steven Pinker says of most origin stories, just make one up. But the fact is, I have no specific memory of who taught me to cook grits or throw together a frogmore stew or smoke oysters or cook red rice just so. These are just things that I did. But I do remember when those things became cool. Somewhere in the 90s, during the Clinton administration. I remember noticing it when upscale restaurants started expanding in Charleston. My mom complained about this explosion because it offended her notion, born of the Depression no doubt, that food happened at home. End of sentence. I insisted one night, some 20 years ago, that we go to Anson's, then one of the pioneering restaurants specializing in low country, South Carolina cuisine. Here's what I wrote. Mom sat at the table as the waiter appeared with her favorite dish, shrimp and grits. It arrived on one of those absurdly massive plates, the size of a manhole cover, and somehow resembled a 3D military map. The grits had been cooled and molded into a sautéed pillbox. Over the top, a creamy sauce flowed out onto the plate like a ragged coastline. Atop, five creek shrimp were set like bunkers against an army of infantry green cilantro flecks marching to the sea. Flying high above it all was a sprig of rosemary, planted there like the ensign of an invading force out to vanquish the low country. Just how I make them, noted Mom, who wanted to go home now. How did her beloved shrimp and grits become a congealed puck of fusion gunk? Shrimp and grits are arguably the signal dish of low country or Gullah cuisine, the food of my youth, and this dish has always been about getting down with a big pile of fresh shrimp that have made the journey from their pluff mud creek beds to your plate with almost no interference other than a little heat and some butter. So a complex sauce just catapults the whole meal into some other time zone. And recasting grits to look fussy and weird is like putting a Victoria's Secret teddy on the family dog. Funny to somebody, but wrong. If I could get a hold of that Anson's menu from the Clinton era, 
Maybe we'd be able to read it together and see a good deal of boomer generation food pretension straining to find expression via the new medium of catfish, field peas, and turnip greens. The fussification of Southern food happened along with a renewed search for authenticity. I somehow associate this with the whole Y2K shift when we left the disgrace of Bill Clinton, a real Southerner, son of a racetrack floozy struggling to keep track of her children's fathers, a young man who aspired to own a 1968 Mustang, Bill Clinton, who then handed off power to a fake Southerner, George Bush, born in New Haven, Connecticut, raised in Kennebunkport, Maine, whose family helped start Planned Parenthood. He bought a ranch in Texas just weeks before running for president, got some denim, a cowboy hat, and a machete for brush-clearing photo ops. Bush's twang and his love of beat-up pickup trucks set the tone for the rise of redneck chic. This was also the time when I noticed that sweet tea just seemed to get sweeter and sweeter, turning into a variation of a frat bro hazing ritual. Go ahead, drink a whole glass of sweet tea without howling in dental pain. I double dare you. First off, historical documents suggest tea was never as sweet as the diabetes-inducing syrup ladled out today. In Marion Cavill Tyree's 1878 cookbook, Housekeeping in Old Virginia, her recipe comes out to about a cup of sugar in a gallon of tea. Today's sweet tea, depending, uses two or three cups. And we talk about sweet tea as if everybody drank it back in the old day. But that's a bit of revisionist history, something at which we Southerners excel. Granulated sugar was a luxury item, as was ice. Sweet tea was a hospitable drink, sure, but for the rich, the liquid equivalent of offering a guest a truffle before dinner or a cohibo afterwards. The aching sweetness of our contemporary tea says very little about beverage authenticity, but a whole lot about the high anxiety and contemporary claims for Southern identity. Have you ever seen that Key and Peel sketch where, as two successful businessmen, they are eating lunch in a joint called Mama Sugarback Soul Food Shack? The two start competing to see who can out-southern the other with their order. One asks for chicken fried steak, but then cancels it and insists upon plate of ham hocks, deep fried, blackened, and served on a bed of mustard greens. The other guy then changes his order to pig feet, pig's feet, and four pounds of grits. Oh, oh, and, and you know what else? Give me a little Dixie cup full of lard. Not to be outdone, we hear about an order for and a bowl of mosquitoes. None of them tiny ones either. Give me them big motherfuckers that find down at the swamp. And then one for a rusty bucket full of fish heads wrapped in razor wire. Which leads to an order for some dandelion greens, a cow hip, and a doggy face wrapped in an old copy of Ebony. So of course his friend orders up a platter of a stork ankles, an old cellar door, a possum spine, and a human foot. He pauses with gravy. Every time I ate in a restaurant in Charleston, I seemed to find someone else asserting some greater claim to authenticity. But then something changed, and the focus moved away from the old ways and moved more exclusively to just cool new things to do with old ingredients. And I came to love this stuff. By the time I wandered into Sean Brock's orbit a few years ago, when he was re-engineering, say, the Benny Seed to its original antebellum, oilier makeup, I started paying a lot more attention. 
And if you go to Charleston today to McCready's or slightly north of Broad or Magnolia's and you order shrimp and grits, it's a different dish than the pompous hockey puck on a hubcap I ordered from my mom. Most of the time, it's some cunning variation of cooking up a little onion with green pepper, toss in some stock, cook some flour in there to make a kind of tight sauce to pour over rougher cut grits, and it's really good. In fact, it's a whole lot better than the simple butter-fried shrimp and Quaker grits of my childhood. As all the fancy cooking gets translated into actual home kitchens, the dishes of my youth have been changing, and mostly for the better. So, truck stops in the South, take note. The coast is clear. You may now lower the glucose content of sweet tea below root canal-inducing levels. And the Scarlet O'Hara? It never did close. Actually, it sank. Turns out, it wasn't even a boat. It was a barge with all that blockade runner stuff just nailed on, permanently cleated to the dock. In 1979, during a freak low tide, the barge lowered just enough that the bow got caught under the dock and the whole thing took on water and descended straight to the bottom of the harbor. No doubt in some not too distant future, I expect to hear about the glass bottom boat tours of Charleston, led by some sly local. The guide will pause above the illuminated sunken ruin of Rhett Butler's authentic blockade runner and we'll hear the story. The tourists will all take lots of pictures, and afterward, they will enjoy a catfish filet toasted in Carolina gold rice midlands sprinkled with pecan dust and a hint of magnolia pollen, just like Mama used to make. Jack Hitch grew up in downtown Charleston. He contributes regularly for the New York Times Magazine and This American Life. His most recent food piece was in Sever magazine, and it was about a group of Carolina men who maintain the centuries-old method of snapping turtle hunting, which, as Jack says, involves the trick of blindly plunging one's arm into a dark, muddy den up to the ball of your shoulder and hoping to grab a turtle the size of a manhole cover by the tail before he has a chance to remove a finger or two. <laughs> Sorry. I can't laugh at my own joke. Jack presented a version of this week's episode at the 2015 Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium. You can find more symposium presentations on our website, southernfoodways.org. Music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, Dana Boole, Sunday Ent, and Weenland. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Thanks to Sarah Camp Milam, John T. Edge, and Gravy's intern, Dana Bialik. Coming up a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first, after hearing this episode, do you find yourself wanting to travel to the Charleston area? If you're looking for beautiful scenery and good food, a favorite local spot is Bowen's Island Restaurant, a family-operated low-country oyster joint. The SFA has collected over 60 years of stories through oral history and film, and we invite you to check them out online. Visit southernfoodways.org to meet oysterman Victor Goat Lafayette, who has been picking oysters for most of his life, or hear the story of Robert Barber, a third-generation restaurateur with a law degree and experience in elected public office. While you're online listening to interviews or watching our films, consider becoming a member. SFA members make this kind of documentary work possible. So the next episode of Gravy marks the last one of this season. I cannot believe it. Ten episodes just fly by. But we've got something special for you to mark the end of this season. 
It's a story I've been working on for more than six months. A story of the loss of hundreds of thousands of acres of Black-owned farmland. And how the USDA was complicit in that. My mother would always say that her father would say he would never borrow any money from Farmers Home Administration because it was just a way of taking black folks' land. That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>